morning. As we, um, as we come to look at God's word together, let's just pause and pray. Father God, we can come this morning and we have many of us different experiences of, uh, of, of the things that have brought us here today. Father God, for some of us, we've walked a long journey with you. Sometimes that's been an easy journey. Sometimes that's been a difficult journey. But we choose to be here. Father, for others, maybe this morning, we're here. The journey's brought us here and it's just family. And church wouldn't be the place you'd normally be on a Sunday morning. But here we are. And Father God, my desire for each of us this morning as we open your word is that you speak to us. And so Father God, and as you're listening this morning, I just pray that you will just have a receptive attitude. Whatever you're carrying, whatever barriers are there, that you just say, God, speak to me. I want to hear whatever you have to say to me today. So, Father God, I pray you'll speak to us. We don't demand it, we just ask in your grace and in your mercy, in your love for us, speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As, as James has said, we're continuing on our, our theme of kind of cross-centered lives, looking at the cross and what it, what it means and, and some of the themes that the cross has for us. And so although we know that, uh, particularly as Christians, we know the cross is very much a center of so much that we believe and that we hold on to and shapes our journey, there are many things that sometimes we can miss or things that we pass over because it's just part of the story. And sometimes it's good for us just to to come back and reflect and remind ourselves of what the cross actually means. And so that's what we are doing. And, uh, and as James said, we're in our kind of a third week of looking at these and we'll kind of continue through to Easter over the next few weeks. And as James says, we're using the book, The Cross-Centered Life, as, as a, a bit of a, a shaping of that and some of the themes. And I really encourage you to, to, to read that. And, and yet it's available as a PDF. You can get it as a hard copy. I've got it on my tablet as a Kindle. Um, there are so many different ways you can access it. So I really encourage you to have a look at that, that shapes your thinking. But can I also encourage you to read your Bible? Because that's where you're going to get the full and biggest story. So if you've got a Bible, then that's what you need to take hold of to get the big picture of what the cross is about. If you haven't got a Bible, I encourage you to get hold of one. Ask somebody next to you, have you got a spare Bible? You know, often as Christians, we have so many spare Bibles lying around in our houses that we don't read anymore because we've got a new one and a new version. And I'm sure we've all got Bibles we can give to somebody. So look, have a read. Find out the story of what the cross is all about because it is life-changing and it is so important for us. And last week, Kathy, Kathy uh, took us on a journey and she was talking about how uh, we need to see how the, the cross is important to us. And she talked about how we, we, the cross shows us so much about who we are. And the cross shows us about who God is. But she also talked about the fact that the, God, that, that the cross shows us the journey back to the garden. 
when we talk about the garden, we talk about the Garden of Eden, that place uh, in, in uh, right at the beginning of, 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 of creation, right at the beginning of human history. It's the place of, uh, of, of perfection. God had created this garden, God had created the world, God had created all of us. And in that garden, it was a place for Adam and Eve of peace and tranquility, a place of intimacy, of connection. Kathy talked about the fact that actually in that place, uh, Adam and Eve could walk in, in complete union with God that they could walk in, in, in union. There was a, a personal, physical relationship with God. And it was a place of peace, a place of intimacy, a place of relationship, a place of connection. There was no deception there, nothing hidden, calm and perfect. Does it sound like the world we're living in now? It's a long way away from the world we're living in now. I don't know if you follow social media particularly, but um, uh, obviously on various things we might have followers. I don't know, anybody follow Elmo from Sesame Street? Here's Elmo. If you don't know who he is, uh, he is well, part of the, the Sesame Street crowd. And, uh, and he, for uh, the last 40 years or so, has been uh, part of Sesame Street teaching, particularly toddlers, um, uh, about life and, and educating them. Uh, and actually, it was Elmo's birthday yesterday. He was three. He's been three since about 1980. It's a bit like some of us. We've been 25 for the last 25 years. But Elmo put out on social media just a little question. He put a question out this week and just asked uh, a question uh, and got a very big response. His question was this, how is everybody doing? How's everybody doing? And if you know Elmo, that's very much in character with Elmo. It's just the question he asks, how are you doing? And out of his nearly half a million followers, he got a big reaction. At the time of writing, when I kind of wrote all this down on Thursday evening, Elmo's question received 12,000 replies and been read 172 million times across various social media platforms. And how is everybody doing? Well, not great. Elmo, I just got laid off, said one. Elmo, I'm depressed and broke. There was lots of comments about anxiety about the American presidential election that's coming up later this year. There were comments about departed spouses and disrespectful offspring. We've got one who actually said the world is burning around us, Elmo, and actually had this uh, uh, on the screen as well. Elmo, I'm suffering from existential dread over here, wrote another user. And I love this one. It says this. Every morning I cannot wait to go back to sleep. Every Monday I can't wait for Friday to come. Every single day and every single week for life. My goodness, that person needs something, a cup of coffee or something. Clearly we're not living like Adam and Eve in that Garden of Gethsemane anymore. And whatever our response might be to Elmo's question, how are we doing? We know we're not living in peace and tranquility and, and intimacy, certainly not with God and certainly not with each other. 
Instead, there was a moment when the serpent, Satan, whispered in the ear of Eve and Adam and deceptively offered an alternate picture of perfection, a distorted picture of what relationship with Creator God could look like. And Adam and Eve ate from that fruit, the fruit that God had placed boundaries upon, boundaries that demonstrated his willingness for us to have free will and not to live as dumb robotic objects that pre-programmed just, just to live and to worship him. God wanted us to have choice and he placed boundaries on that one simple thing. And Adam and Eve's one simple act set in motion the rest of the catastrophic and chaotic life that we know now. And we're constantly looking for ways to fix it. We're constantly looking for ways to, to make that, that, that kind of chaos and that catastrophe go away. We try to, to look for peace and to bring healing to extend life, to find contentment and intimacy. And we look in so many different areas, in, in so many different ways to, to, to hold on to that thing that sometimes we don't even know how to define, but that hunger that God has placed within us to find peace and intimacy with him. And it's been lost. And there is only one way that's really going to happen. Jesus, when he was here on earth, he says to his disciples, he said this, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father. No one gains that sense of intimacy. No one gains that peace. No one gains that access to the Father except through me, Jesus. It's only one way, and that's Jesus. And Jesus chose the way of the cross. So how does that work? How does Jesus and the cross fit into that picture of, uh, of bringing uh, a sense of, of what happened at Garden of Eden to closure so we can come back into uh, a right relationship with God? How does that one act of rebellion that happened in the Garden of Eden, that moment of sin, how, how does that impact and, and how does the cross deal with that? Well, that one act of rebellion, that one thing that happened in the Garden of Eden is, is sin. We call it sin, but it's rebellion. It's going against God. And that moment of sin has meant separation from God. And by separation, I don't just mean that God is slightly offended by us. It's not a case of just having a lover's tiff. Because it comes back and down to actually who God is and his character. Because God's holiness stands against our sin. A simple way to perhaps define sin this morning is an act of going against God and his ways. So it makes sense then if we are going in one direction, if we are going in one direction and God is over here, that there's going to be separation. God in his holiness is over here and we are striving in our sin as much as we might try to be like God, we are over here and there's separation. God exists in in perfection. He is holy. And our, and our sin stands in complete opposition to that. 
God is holy, he's perfect in all things, perfect in love, perfect in justice, perfect in being, perfect in doing. There is nothing incomplete or wrong about him, nothing imperfect about him. It's what makes him who he is. I wouldn't want a God in any other form because that makes an imperfect God. And, and actually, what's the point of following an imperfect God? The universe he created was perfect. The human beings he made in his own image were perfect until we messed it up. The moment Adam and Eve sinned, their eyes were opened and they knew that a separation had occurred. You can read the story in Genesis chapter 3. Something had come between them and God. They became aware of sin and its consequences. Nobody had to tell them that he had done wrong. They knew. God had given them the boundaries and they knew. And sin creates a sense of estrangement from God, a distance. What was God's response? What was God's response to then to that separation? And as we read through our Bibles, if you were to read through your Bible, you'll see lots of different themes of God dealing, God responding to that separation. And as we look at the cross, we'll be picking up some of those themes that, that weave their way through God's word. But one of the themes that I want to pick up this morning, or the main theme that I'm going to pick up this morning, it's not always a popular topic. It's not something that's always easy, and particularly in our Western church, we sometimes fight against it, and particularly in liberal Christian circles, it's something that is fought against. But God's response what we're going to look at this morning. God's response was wrath, righteous anger. And the cross is a picture of God's righteous anger, his wrath. You see, the wrath of God is a theme that's spoken of something like 600 times directly or indirectly in the Old Testament. It's something that weaves its way through the story. It's talked about in the New Testament as well. Sometimes God's wrath is very explicit. It's very clear. It's spoken off. We see that phrase, the wrath of God, and, and understand how it fits in. But the wrath of God is also told in the stories and the narrative of what goes on through the Bible. We see in Genesis chapter 3 that God's wrath actually isn't spoken about. But as God speaks in response to Adam and Eve's sin, as God speaks and says, there are consequences, here's my Judgment, it is the wrath of God spoken in action. Because our sin causes and provokes God's wrath. God's wrath, though, is not bad temper. It's not as if God is losing it. It's not like our anger. My children are delightful, they're lovely, peaceful always doing as they're told. They never provoke me to anger at all. If only that were true. I am provoked to anger sometimes because of the things that my children do. But my my provocation is not necessarily fair and just and I don't have a handle enough on my emotions to be able to deal with that in a way which is just and right for the situation. God, in his perfect holiness, can handle his wrath that we have provoked him to because he is perfect. So he handles his, his wrath, his anger about our sin is just and right and holy. 
God's response is anger, it's wrath, it's right. We need to see that actually because of God's perfection, it is the right thing, the right response that comes from a God of love. He must act justly and judge sin. He must respond in wrath because of our, our rebellion. Otherwise, God would not be God. He can't just paper over. He can't just pretend it hasn't happened. But let's make sure we see that God's love and God's wrath are not symmetrical. It's not a scale that is balanced out by at one end God's wrath and the other God's love. We read in Scripture that God is love. That is who he is. At no point in Scripture do we read that God is wrath. God is love. It is, part, it is who he is. And every other character, every other aspect of God comes out of who he is and he is love. So as I say, God's wrath is provoked by our sin. It's not something that he carries uh, as part of his character just without that provocation. It never says in God's word that he is wrath. The closest we get to saying anything like that is where we read that God is a consuming fire which, which burns in order to purify us and to punish us. But it's still an action of his love. You know, we are made in God's image and we carry emotions. And, and God, we read in so many places in scripture that God carries emotions. But God is not swept up by emotions. We never read of God falling in love with us as if love as an emotion has kind of swept him away and he's not in control of it. We never read that God loses it in anger. We read that God grieves, but we never read that God is crippled by grief. God carries emotions and we as as people made in his image carry those. But sin has caused those emotions to then rage out of control and we have no true handle on them. And so often we are swept up in emotions. But God's love, he loves us. Nothing is going to change that. It is not down to circumstances, not down to how we behave. It's not down to things that we do or don't do. God loves us because he is love. It is an unchangeable fact. God's wrath is provoked because of our sin, but it is a right response because of God's love for us. But his anger is not an over-the-top anger. It is just and is right. God's wrath is right because of our sin and our rebellion. So what do we do about it? If God is angry, if God is righteously angry with us, if God's wrath is against us because of our rebellion, what do we do about it? What do we do about that separation from God? You know, as I said earlier, we can spend so much of our time looking for ways to fill that gap. Sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, looking for, for ways to restore peace, to restore that, that connectivity, to, to restore the contentment and intimacy that, that within us we know there's something there because it was part of who we were and God created us in the Garden of Eden. But the reality is, in ourselves, we can do nothing. We are impotent. Impotent in our knowledge, in our strength, our power, our emotions, our technology, our science. We are impotent. There is nothing that we can have, nothing that we can do that is going to bridge that separation between uh, God and man because of our sin. 
Nothing that we have that can satisfy the wrath of a holy and righteous God. But God knew that too. God knows that. And aside from the theme of God's wrath, the Bible is full of the themes of his love and his patience and his mercy and his grace. And God's response there before was not just wrath. His response was then to, to step in, to step in and to do something. Let me read some verses from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. It says this. The Apostle Paul wrote this to a young man who's leading a church called Timothy. He says, For there was one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity. The man Christ Jesus, he gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. This was God's response. To send a mediator, to step in the man Jesus Christ. You know, we, we know when something is separated. Sometimes when we have arguments with people. Sometimes uh, when we're in conflict with people. Maybe it's in relationships. Maybe it's in work. That actually there, there needs to be some form of reconciliation. We try and work it out. We try and bring things back together. We need a plan, a way to bring about reconciliation. And often in cases of separation where there's pain and where there's hurt, then there needs to be somebody else that comes in to act as a mediator in that situation. Someone who is going to be there to listen to both sides and and particularly to represent both sides fairly. To stand in the gap. And in this verse... Paul makes it very clear who that mediator is. In our situation, the separation that we have between God and us, the mediator is Jesus Christ. The man, Jesus Christ. Jesus who was fully God, but who came to earth and was fully man. Jesus, the mediator who stepped down into this life and intentionally and purposefully lived out a life among us to share our pain, to be tempted and tried, to, to laugh and to cry in order to, to stand equally, equally with us, our representative before Father God. Jesus, the mediator who was God's representative here on earth. Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus on on whom all the fullness of God resides. God's representative before us. Jesus the mediator who stands in the gap. Fully God, fully man. Who can represent both sides fairly and equally. Who stands in the gap of a holy God. Jesus who stands representing God in this place. And Jesus the man who who came and lived amongst us. And who stands in the gap as our representative. Because we need that in order to bridge the gap. to, 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 To bring conciliation, reconciliation. How did Jesus bring about that reconciliation? Well we read in 1 Timothy 2 again. It says this, he gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. Jesus gave his life. 
He gave himself. Jesus didn't just act as the mediator in words. He acted as the mediator in action as well. He stood in the gap and didn't just talk and represent and sit on the sidelines and just say, look, you guys work it out. Let me just listen to both sides and see if we can come to some amicable solution. Jesus stood in the gap and said, let me bridge the gap. Let me bring that separation that that leaves you so far away, mankind, from a holy God. And he says, let me stretch my arms out and and close this gap so there's a way across. He gave his life on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. Why was it needed? What's at work here? I've spoken already this morning about God's formidable holiness that stands against us in our sinfulness and rebellion. And God's righteous response to our rebellion is his anger, is his wrath. We can't stand before his anger and his wrath. We are lost, completely, utterly undone before God, before the judgment of a holy God who looks at us and sees our wickedness And the cross of Jesus is all about God's holiness. It's all about recognizing that actually this place of blood, this place of suffering, this place of torment is all about understanding God's holiness and what it cost, actually cost Jesus to to hang on the cross. Because the cross answered this question, how can a holy God be reconciled to an unholy sinful people? How can the relationship between a holy God and an unholy people be restored that doesn't lead to some gross act of injustice that would offend a holy and righteous God? And the cross shows us how much that God values his perfection, his holiness. We see that God will not violate his own holiness in order to save the ones he loves. It shows us that in God's love, it's not a case of just saying, never mind, we'll sweep it under the carpet. There has to be a right cost for our rebellion. Here at the cross, we see how God's wrath and God's mercy and God's grace and God's love meet in a perfect response to our sin. We see them, we see all of them in a glorious fullness. The fullness of God's wrath arrayed against Jesus standing in our place. But the fullness of God's love and God's grace and God's mercy. Because without those things we are lost. But God acts for us. He looks at us with love and not with his wrath. We look at the cross and we see Jesus Christ serving the just sentence of a sinner. We look at the cross and see Jesus experiencing physical death so that his heart stops and his body begins to decay. But he also faces spiritual death, spiritual destruction. He is punished by facing the fury of the wrath of God, God's righteous anger for our sin. Jesus didn't deserve that. It was my sin, it was your sin. God's wrath that was, that was poured out against me, against you. And, you know, we, there is so much about God that we don't understand. We don't understand the breadth, the width, the depth of his love. But neither do we understand really the, the depths and the fury of a holy God. 
we would be crushed, we would be dust, we would be nothing. And Jesus stands in that gap, not because he had to, but because he chose to. Jesus never sinned. The mediator who stands in our place has never sinned. It's like Jesus walking into a courtroom, standing between the judge and the guilty person, saying, I will serve the sentence. I will buy their freedom. Jesus became vile and detestable to God. The vilest and detestablest thing you could even think of because he carried our sin. And God poured out the full measure of his wrath on Jesus. He poured out his wrath upon Christ until that wrath was absorbed and exhausted until every bit of justice, holy justice, had been satisfied. Christ served the complete sentence of just wrath that I deserved. And this is the wonder of the cross. The wonder of the cross where grace, grace speaks of God's love for us. The wonder of the cross where where, where wrath is poured out, but it's covered over by grace and love because God is love. And just as I close this morning, I want to leave just a couple of thoughts for you. Because I believe there's an impact for us, and particularly this morning. Let me just say, if, we are, if you are a Christian here this morning, what does God's wrath mean for you? Because we certainly stand in a place where our sins are forgiven. And that's right. We've, we've confessed our sins to God. And as far as the east is from the west, that's how far removed our sins are from us. And some of us might argue, well, we don't need to worry about God's wrath. Don't have to worry about it because my sins are covered. We can talk about the cancelling of sin and the cancelling of guilt and the cancelling of shame. And in many senses, that is biblically true. And, uh, and we, again, we need to make sure we see this rightly in perspective. But as you look at the cross this morning, as the cross stands before us this morning as Christians, we need to be sure that we don't lose sight of the impact of the cross on the wrath of God. We need to see that actually, even as Christians, because we know that we still sin. And that sin is still bound up with offending God. It's not just offending an impersonal moral code. It's not just a case about a list of rights and wrongs. It's about a personal offending of a righteous God, a God who loves us. So even as Christians, we need to hold that sense of the wrath of God, God's holiness before us. Because if we begin to lose that, what tends to happen is that we diminish sin in our eyes. And we justify our behaviours that still dishonour God, that still offend God. And as Christians, as, as hard as it is, we need to hold the holiness of God up high. 
You know, we can talk about the God of grace. And we love walking in the God of grace. And the God of grace is someone who allows us to kind of to live our lives. And, uh, and it covers over a multitude of sins. But we can't have grace without holiness. We can't have a God of love as sinners without also recognising that our wrongdoing still provokes God's wrath. And we have to come to him and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for minimalizing my sin. I'm sorry for diminishing who you are and, and focusing on one area of your character and diminishing your holiness and who you are. And Father God, this morning, help me realign my thoughts and my patterns of behavior so I place your holiness as high as I place your grace and your love. And if you're not a Christian this morning, not yet a Christian, can I just say this to you? You know, there are some things that I picked up this morning early on, themes of, uh, of chaos and separation, things uh, of talking about peace and intimacy. And maybe for you this morning, that actually kind of just prodded something in, in, your, in your spirit, in your internal thinking. You've been aware that actually perhaps even this week, you've just been having thoughts about my life is chaotic. I wish I had more peace. Maybe you're even aware that you're chasing after some intimacy with something or somebody and it's just not coming to you. There's a gap, there's a hole in your life that, that craves some sense of calmness and peace. Can I invite you to see that Jesus is the one that offers you that peace, that offers you that intimacy? Because it's Jesus who's the one who stands against the chaos and the calamity of our lives. And he offers us peace. Peace that doesn't mean to say everything suddenly goes right in the world and all our problems go away, but a peace that allows us to sit in the comfort and in the, the, uh, on the, on the, in the place where Jesus is our rock and our sure foundation. And it means whatever storms come at me, I can stay safe and secure and chaos can go on around me, but I have peace. And maybe for you this morning, that's something you've been searching for. And Jesus Christ stood in your place in order to bring us back to a place of peace. You know, there's so much more we can and will be learning about the cross, about Jesus Christ. But for now, this morning, if you have that yearning, if you have that hunger to say, God, this peace that's being talked about, I want, to, I want that. I'm going to pray. And we're going to close our eyes as we pray. And I'm going to just pray slowly to give you a chance to respond in your heart and your mind just to say, this is something I want, God. To recognize that I'm in rebellion against you and and, and I want it to stop because the rebellion is causing the chaos and I need peace. And then when I finished praying, we're all going to stay with our eyes closed and our heads bowed and... If there's a prayer that you've prayed for the first time, I'm going to invite you to raise your hand so that we can then connect with you and talk this through with you some more. 
It might be that you're here with some friends or family and, and, and you want to speak about and you know that they walk with Jesus and you want to spend some time talking to, about this. You know, God spoke to me and I, and, and I responded and I want to find out more. Or you can come and speak to myself or James or somebody else you know in the church. But an invitation for you to respond and just say, God, I know you've spoken to me. So let's bow our heads. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the truth that it speaks of. Father God, we thank you too for your cross. And I pray, Father God, this morning, as we just respond, we have a clear image of who you are through the cross as we look at how our rebellion has caused separation from you. But Jesus Christ, I thank you that you are our mediator. Jesus Christ, I thank you that you died for me. I thank you that you took on the wrath of God for me. I thank you, Jesus, that you stood in my place. And I need you. I need your peace. I need a relationship with you. I confess that I have rebelled and sinned. Please come and show me how to live a life of peace with you. Amen. Amen. Just keep your heads bowed. Close your eyes. That's a prayer you've responded to the first time, asking God for peace, recognizing that you need him as your mediator. You just raise your hand just so we can see. There's no rush. We can just wait. Maybe there's a stirring in you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Even if you didn't raise your hand right now, you can put hands down. Even if you didn't raise your hand right now, but you know that you want to uh, actually pray that prayer a bit more personally, then again, come and, come and grab me afterwards. Come and speak to James. Even just come to the front here and we'll, uh, we'll sit down with you and talk it through some more with you. It's never too late to respond until we get to the end of life. But now... It's as good a time as any to respond to the need, the recognizing the need of a mediator, somebody to stand in that gap, to bridge the gap between us and a holy God. 
Thank you. Thank you, Father God. James, can you just come and close us 